right, everybody, before we get started for today's episode, if you guys haven't heard yet, we're doing what we call the Crypto Hedge Fund Summit, and this is June 25th to June 26th. It's completely free. So before you fast forward through this ad, go to CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com and you can sign up for free. We interviewed over 35 hedge fund managers and investors, CEOs, founders, just brilliant, brilliant investing minds. And we got a bunch of nuggets of wisdom and they're all for you, all for free. And you could watch it from the comfort of your own home. Recording all these interviews was a very eye-opening experience for me. I feel at least three times smarter than I was before. I listen to all these intelligent people that have decades of experience more than I do and tremendous analytics tools and quants at their disposal that normal guys like us don't. Go to CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com and get your free ticket today. All right, all you wonderful citizens of Crypt Nation, we are back with another great episode here at the Crypto 101 podcast today. I am unfortunately not joined by my very notorious compadre, Pizza Mind. Uh, he is MIA today, uh, but that is no problem. I am joined by an even finer fellow, I might have to say. Pizza, if you're listening, I apologize. But we have Brian Kerr, the CEO and founder of Kava. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me, Bryce. I, you know, I, I know Pizza Mind, and uh, like we, we met in Singapore a while back. So I, 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 I don't think he's... He, he's definitely a fine compadre himself. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sad he's not here, but you know, I'm happy to, to chat with, with you and, and get into things. Yeah, he, he's been a wonderful, wonderful co-host. And just as, as days go on, we just continue to get busier and busier and busier. Uh, and so it seems like, you know, divide and conquer has been uh, the modus operandi here at Crypto 101. Do you, how have things been with you and Kava? Uh, over you know throughout this whole COVID thing, have you guys been hiring or slowing down on hiring? What's the what's the what's the deal over there by you guys? Yeah, it was it's really interesting given that we have a team in in Shanghai um, and kind of spread out all over the world uh, with a lot of our remote developers. So we actually got to see COVID happen uh, kind of a month and a half before everyone else over there, and then. Uh, as we sort of saw our signs of our, like the people couldn't go to the offices anymore. They started staying home. They, they told us about how they couldn't leave their house every other day. They, they were sort of rationed on how many times they could go grocery shopping. All those things were fine over here in, in San Francisco or where I'm at. But then, you know, fast forward a, a month or, or and a half, we were in the process of, of bringing on a bunch of new hires, uh, particularly to join our marketing team and a few developers and it was right then that sort of all the signs pointed to COVID was going to be a very big global thing. We told everyone that they could work from home. Uh, and then kind of the, the San Francisco shutdown happened a few days later and the U.S. shutdown happened. But I would say as like a company, we've been actively hiring through this phase. It is really difficult, though, to uh, like for the marketing team, we like to have everyone in person collaborating working together. And when you have new hires, you want to spend as much face time as you can to get them up to speed as, as quickly as you can. Right. Um, and COVID kind of pre presented a lot of challenges just to learn and build the muscle memory of doing that while not in person with people. Uh, you know, of course, Zoom is everyone's best friend right now. <laughs> um, and after a, a month or two of figuring out like what how communication best practices and everything else, I, I think we finally found a pretty good groove. Where everyone's That's working together, awesome. we we do our best to to make up for the lost face time. Yeah, I I was uh you know as you're saying this, I'm thinking about how how much 
you know, how, how many advantages there are to really being in person, you know, it, there's nothing really, there, there's no way to replace the creativity that happens when you just have, you know, a couple minds in the room, cl- uh, you know, a cup of coffee, some snacks and a whiteboard where you guys could just hash it out, do all your, you know, your research, present your research, do your math, uh, and just get creative. But it's good to hear that you guys are really coping well. Um, and I'm excited to dive into exactly what you guys are doing, but but before we dive in, Brian, give us a quick, uh, give us a quick update of like, how did you find yourself in this industry? Like, it's a very niche industry. What were you doing before, and why are you here? Yeah, that's a great question. I think everyone finds themselves in, in crypto through different avenues, and uh, for me, it was gaming. I uh, had ah. started a venture bet company, uh, one of the world's largest esports teams called Fnatic. Uh, there, I focused on launching hardware lines. And uh, we had eight professional teams, you know, competing around the world. And uh, Fnatic was established and, and really grew kind of with the whole Twitch boom, when live streaming and video games became really popular. Uh, so I got to be part of that company as we went from a, a team of like three, very, very small three people in, in, uh, in London, and then it expanded to over 100 people by the time I, I stepped down as CEO there in 2000, I think that was the end of 2016. And at that point, I was already sort of eyeing crypto. Uh, I think gaming is a natural avenue into crypto just because digital assets are, have been in video games for ages and uh, digital assets. And like, I just kind of intuitively got what the value proposition of, of cryptocurrencies were. My, my first thing I wanted to do is buy a Starbucks with you know World of Warcraft gold or something. So it's like, <laughs> can I do that with crypto? Maybe. Like That seems pretty good. Um, and a lot of my a lot of the co-founders of various companies in esports had actually already did the jump and went in and they started some of the first gaming projects uh, shortly after the ETH boom. So like D-Market was a project I was involved with as an advisor. It was a, or it is a digital asset marketplace uh, for video game items uh, that is all done on, on the blockchain. And there was just a number of projects like that that really turned my head and made me pay attention to the space. And after I saw kind of all the the investment, all the activity, all the talent going into crypto, uh, I just got incredibly bullish on the whole thing and said, you know, the next five years of my life, at least I'm going to spend in this industry and I want to get as smart as I can, as fast as I can and, and do something meaningful here. And when you got here, there was obviously a lot of problems to be solved. Um, it's a new industry and ton, tons of, uh, tons of issues, uh, and tons of just infrastructure that is theoretically possible. Um, and that is present in traditional financial capital markets, uh, but aren't necessarily built out here in the decentralized trustless world of crypto. So tell us about, you know, the problem that you saw in crypto when you came here that led to the solution that you've created in Kava? Yeah. So when I first did sort of dove into the space, I was fortunate enough to get in front of like Joe Lubin, the heads of Ripple, like David Schwartz, and kind of talked to all the guys leading the biggest projects at the time. And it became pretty apparent to me very quickly that everyone at that time was focused on solving the layer one problem and the scaling problem. Uh, so me and my, my co-founders dug into that particular problem and we researched sort of what makes a distributed system, what, why is there this trade-off between throughput and scalability and liveness of the network? 
And we came to the conclusion that it's a fundamental trade-off and there's not like a one thing that will just solve that. Uh, there's no technology that's going to come that's going to solve this trade-off issue. And with that in mind, we came up with the thesis that every blockchain will have to specialize at doing something well. Being a blockchain that does everything well means that you do nothing well in the in the long tail of uh, sort of in, in the long time horizon. Um, so what we've seen is Bitcoin is a great store of value. It transacts really slow, which is probably uh, you know it used the scaling issue to its advantage. It actually made it even better store of value. Where on the flip side, Ripple is very fast, but it's fairly trusted and, and centralized um, for a number of reasons. And what we saw is in this world where all the blockchains can have to specialize, when they specialize, then they can work together in different ways. You can add a privacy layer with you know, some of the privacy chains. You can add a, a services layer, whether it's storage or compute or whatever you might need. And you can combine these to create a stack of technologies that's very much like what we have on the internet now, where we have, they're called uh, web services or microservices that are behind every application that runs. And kind of my, my thesis is, and many of the people who believe in this idea of Web3, is that all these different blockchains will specialize in something and they'll work together. And the end result will be these beautiful applications that can do things better than what we have today. Wow, that is very, very beautifully said. Um, do you guys get any inspiration uh, from MakerDAO? I, I, I feel like, um, you know, MakerDAO does some very similar stuff that Kava does. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about uh, the differences? Yeah, sorry, I didn't answer that your first question altogether. Uh, <laughs> with with the problem that we focused on solving is when we had this thesis, uh, we then realized that okay, we can. We actually built up a lot of expertise internally. We started as a software development company to give you a little background, where we worked hand in hand with Ripple and we worked with MakerDAO and we worked with a number of the leading blockchains, uh, learning from them, working on uh, interoperability and, and cross chain transactions. And at the end of uh, 2000, was it 2019, we had seen sort of the, the uh, success of Maker, the adoption, the natural sort of user base of Maker, which was really impressive to us since crypto was struggling generally to find uh, a good use case. Everyone promised, you know, it, it could be supply chain on the blockchain, it could be identity on the blockchain, it could be all these things. But really what shined through, um, through 2018, that bear market in 2018, was this decentralized finance use case. So taking services that exist today in our current financial system and creating trustless versions of that that are open to everyone. They aren't dependent on sort of what jurisdiction you live, what identity, what credit score. They just like, if you have a computer, you can access these services. And MakerDAO is really the first uh, company to come in and prove out a use case in that category. So as we were working closely with them, uh, we saw that there was a big opportunity to take our skill set, which was cross-chain transactions, getting these networks to, to work together. And we could do what MakerDAO uh, had done for the Ethereum community. So in MakerDAO, ETH can be deposited as collateral, and then people can receive loans from the Maker system uh, in their stablecoin DAI. And it's a beautiful system, and it works great for the ETH community. The problem is that Bitcoiners and anyone else who holds any other asset like XRP, Atom, BNB, all the big market cap assets, they can't use that service at all because it lives within ETH and it will only be able to live within ETH. So what we did is we built a generalized platform that could interact with these different blockchain networks 
So anyone who holds a crypto asset can now use those assets to get a collateralized loan. And what, what do they do with that loan? Uh, typically, people will use it to spend off of, and they'll use their stable coins to make payments, uh, but without having to sell their underlying collateral because they believe it's going to go up in the long term. And then the other use case that people will use these loans for is like a margin account with traditional, uh, like if I'm trading Apple stock, I actually can do a margin long position of Apple stock using the Apple stock as collateral. So I can get two or three X the exposure to Apple stock. So if it goes up, you know, I get three X the gains and people use this loan in the same way where they deposit, let's use uh, BNB since that's the first asset on Kava, they'll deposit BNB, get a loan out uh, in the stable coin and then use that stable coin to buy more BNB. So then they're, Overall, wow. BNB that they hold is greater than what they started with. So they get leveraged exposure if BNB goes up. So that's what you would call a collateralized debt position, correct? Uh, the depositing of an asset and using it as collateral uh, and then receiving a loan. The, the tech term is CDP or collateralized debt position. And I think the more common financial term would be collateralized debt obligation which was a lot of the mortgage-backed securities that uh, blew up in 2008. And the beautiful thing that crypto solves and having all this on the blockchain solves is the issue in 2008 with that financial crisis was that no one could tell what the underlying assets were. It wasn't transparent. But because this all lives on the blockchain, it's 100% transparent. You know exactly where the assets are, what they are, what the quality of, it, uh, of them is, what the sort of risk of the debt is. Um, so I... I believe that what we're doing here has the potential to grow into a very, very big thing that solves a lot of the world's issues, um, particularly around transparency and financial systems. Yeah. Could you kind of un unpack that, that idea right there with CDOs? Like when you say you, you couldn't tell what securities or what cash flows were actually backing uh, the CDO, like what do you mean by that? So a big problem um, I say it's a problem, but there, there's a lot of flexibility bankers or um, different financial institutions had when they made different security products. They could take, um, say, some really good quality debt, say a corporate bond from Apple, and pair it with some really bad debt, like credit card debt or something that has really high risk. And what they then could do is if they put those two things together, they could sell it as like the average risk. Oh. Um, but as, as things got smaller, like basically what they would do is they would stuff more and more bad debt into smaller percentages. So it was like hidden within these baskets of debt. And because uh, that was just sort of rampant across the financial industry, uh, a lot of people were buying these debt packages as really good quality debt thinking because they were AAA rated uh, uh, securities, they, they would say, okay, this is safe. I'm putting all my money here. I can buy up a lot of this and, and it's, a, it's a good security effectively, but underlying assets actually would reveal that it wasn't. And that was one of the primary issues in 2008. Wow. So it was like a fixed income product where people thought, hey, this is a really safe investment. It's like a bond, you know, you're going to get, you know, fixed yield. Uh, and then it just blew up. Yeah, like a quarter of the debt underneath defaulted, right? And Holy crap. Uh, the whole thing would cause this big snowball um, that trickled from pretty much uh, 
sort of debt backer to debt backer, anyone who was holding these securities had to cover their losses. They had to liquidate things. And that was sort of the, the big snowball of 2008. Uh, but it was all because there was a lack of transparency and also a lack of regulation uh, and oversight. Wow. So, so we, we're covering a lot. You've been in crypto for a long time. There's, there's been um, some things that you witnessed in the traditional financial world that you saw, you know, crypto could be, you know, provide solutions for. What kind of cataclysmic failures in crypto have happened uh, that, that have maybe, you know, I'm trying to, trying to frame the question of like, is it, we have these smart contracts that sometimes they go a little wonky, right? There was parity, there was the Dow. There have been some cataclysmic events in crypto that have wiped out blockchains or wiped out money and wallets and all that kind of stuff. So how safe is it really to leave your crypto locked away in one of these smart contracts? That's a great question. I think the answer is it depends on what network it is and what that smart contract is doing. Um, The more complex the system is uh, or the more flexible that system is to run various smart contracts, the more attack vectors uh, open up and the more complex sort of dependent smart contracts are on the one that you're using also increases attack vectors. So for some, I, I, I personally believe that Ethereum is, well, it's where DeFi has started because it provided the, the landscape with the most flexible smart contracts to do anything. At the same time, I, I believe the future is going to be very risky for the Ethereum DeFi platforms just because the attack vectors are huge given Ethereum's open smart contracting system. Where if you take that by comparison to what we're doing here at Kava, we only allow for very scoped modules. They're they're called modules, but they're like bundles of code where there's a very specific input and output. You input some variable and it needs to output some variable. And you can run tests because it's scoped for that. It's almost impossible to run tests for Ethereum um, to get what we call, uh, what is the words? formal verification, um, which means that you can be almost like 99.99999% certain that the code is going to run as expected. Uh, But we believe that's going to be a new paradigm going forward for DeFi, where more and more of these projects are going to go through very formal testing. And it's going to become a requirement uh, just because the tail risks of the whole thing exploding are very large. And as you mentioned, we saw that in a number of projects in the early days, um, I think a lot of early projects of, of crypto and even to this day have this mode of early Facebook, which is like go fast and break things. Right. But when you're dealing with millions of dollars of people's funds, that's probably not the best mode to operate in. It's like really good for a software startup that wants to go to market, get a bunch of users. It's great for a video game. It's great for you know some SaaS company. It's horrible for a financial product. Um, and what we saw recently with the DeForce uh, hack, which I, I don't know if you're aware of, yeah. they basically grew from a very small startup to $25 million in collateral assets locked up in their software. And they had never had that software go through an audit. Um, so it was just you know completely exposed. No one did any testing. It was like, a, you can think of it as like a guy hacking in a basement and he makes some code one day. It's like, oh, this is really cool. And he publishes it live. But then all of a sudden people like it and they start using it. But no one's actually doing the due diligence to see what's happening. They just like sort of the the results in the short term. And then a bug was found where a hacker could, uh, a hacker did drain all $25 million out of the DeForce uh, protocol. 
And it was a very easily identifiable bug that we've been found in basic audits and other things. Um, but we just sort of see this same situation happen time and time again, although it's getting a little bit less frequent. Uh, and it just becomes like, I think there needs to be best practices established where if you're building financial software, particularly DeFi, which is code that's going to live on the blockchain forever, you need to treat it almost like a hardware product. You can't do iterative upgrades, pushing it like software where you just update an app in the, the app store. Um, well said. Because if, if there's issues, people are going to lose their hard-earned money and that's no fun for anyone. And if you're the app developer and that happens, like your, your project's kind of dead. Like no one's going to trust you with their funds after that. So we've been here at Kava very... Uh, careful in terms of we do a lot of internal testing first. We do a lot of external audits. We hire third-party auditors. We bring in a lot of people from our ecosystem to review the code before it's ever published live on the blockchain. So we get about 100 different companies, I think, in total looking at our code at some point in the wow. process before it goes out. And you know, still, it's not going to be 100% safe to answer your question. Like All of this is really, I think, the, the best mental model is to think all blockchain software is beta software. With it's the exception all probabilistic. Of Bitcoin, which is, it's probabilistic, but it's also beta software. Like there's only so many users. It hasn't been out in the wild so long. Like Bitcoin's been out in the wild for a while. So like that, that one's pretty safe. But even three or four years of being out in the wild, I wouldn't say it's 100% safe yet, right? It's like, it takes a while. It takes a lot of people poking at it before you can be um, pretty certain that that thing's 100% safe. I, I do trust DeFi protocols with my money personally, um, but I also can look at them and justify, okay, do I know these developers? Are they credible? Has it gone through the right security process? And I think a lot of people don't do that. And I think they're taking much bigger risks with their investments than they think. And just one more reminder, if you want to know what smart money is, you have to attend the Crypto Hedge Fund Summit. Sign up at CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com. We're talking with some of the brightest minds in this space about what smart money is, what they do, and how to follow it. If you're even halfway serious about investing in crypto, this is a can't-miss event. That's exactly right, guys. We speak with investing professionals, conducted a ton of interviews, and they're all yours for free. All you got to do is sign up for a free ticket, right? CryptoHedgeFundSummit.com. It's going to be a lot of fun, guys. We hope to see you guys there. Very well said. That, that just springs to mind so many questions. I don't really even know where to start. Um, but maybe I'll start with the idea of recourse um, and how in crypto, all these you know transactions and stuff, uh, their final settlement, you know, they're, they're, a lot of them are triggered automatically and um, machine to machine. And there's very little recourse, meaning if, if a, something goes wrong, uh, you can't get your money back and all that kind of stuff. And we recently mm -hmm. saw, you know, a big hack uh, in the Trinity wallet. And I actually was just talking to David Shunstebo, uh, who's one of the founders of IOTA. And he was talking about what happened there uh, with the Trinity wallet and how nothing really broke with, with, with the blockchain itself necessarily. It was more of a third party application that was developed. That's this Trinity wallet that, you know, had some buggy code, but David, took $2 million out of his own pocket to reimburse everybody who was affected by that. And he kind of announced that on the show and it was really a cool moment mm. uh, to realize, uh, like he was like, what, you know, we, we've taken responsibility, but now, you know, we've changed so much about, you know, our, you know, internal protocol of how we interact with third-party software and, and what kinds of materials we'll give them and allow them access to and all that kind of stuff. So, 
Um, it, but he was saying, you know, they have the there, there's some type of mechanism in their blockchain called the coordinator, which is this centralized little, uh, you know, node uh, to help with this sort of recourse. And, you know, long winded, you know, kind of anecdote. But the question that I'll, that I'll, ask, that I'll ask you is, you know, is there recourse um, for users in your system uh, with maybe insurance or, or how do you guys work around that kind of stuff just in case that, you know, 0.0001% tail risk uh, happens? So that's a, a great question. That I think many people in the crypto industry, developers and users alike, need to uh, think about and, and answer for themselves. What I would say is because DeFi is still such a small niche area, although it's one of the biggest in crypto, it's still very niche. The ability for people to offer insurance products, like you know, if I'm taking a flight somewhere, I get flight insurance in case I get sick or the flight gets canceled or you know whatever. I don't think that that will be available for another six months to a year, but it's coming. And I think that, uh, like I know, I know a number of projects that are actually building insurance products currently. It takes time to build these. But I think that when people are putting their funds into them, uh, into Kava, into DeFi protocols like Compound, it's nice to have that insurance if you could. And people would pay a premium for it. And I think that that is coming in a trustless fashion where it's not a centralized party. It's not like Lloyd's of London insuring you or something. Um, it's a service like QuantStamp, I know, is working on it. And, and there's a few others. And that's going to be really nice because it, it means that the industry is maturing when, when they're finally available. But for the yeah. time being, there isn't anything available. And that means that you have to know that you could lose all your funds um, in this risk. And I would say, like what the guy at IOTA that you mentioned did is it's very generous and he absolutely did not need to do that. Um, and he probably shouldn't do that because it actually encourages people to look for hacks and steal people's money because someone else is going to um, sort of balance it out at the end of the day. One of the things that I've seen recently, um, and it's all over crypto, is people in Eastern Europe or wherever uh, message folks in Telegram pretending to be mods or admins, pretending to be me, pretending to be you know, every other project leader and they message people and say, Hey, if you, they, they always have some weird story where it's like, Hey, if you send me your Kava or if you send me your BNB, um, we'll increase the staking rewards for you and, um, you know, give you the return in a few days or something like that. And it sounds silly when you hear it, you're like, of course, people aren't going to do that. And, and just for everyone to know, it's like, you should never send your crypto to anyone, period. It's just not something you should do. It should be on your cold storage or it should go to an address on exchange and that's it. Um, right. <laughs> there's not really a, a good reason to send it directly to people. If it comes in an email or if it comes in Telegram, never send your crypto to those people, even if they seem credible. It's most likely a scam. It, it's you know our, our modern era of the Nigerian prince emails. <laughs> and... Uh, but what, what happened recently with Kava is, you know, someone messaged, uh, me and said, Hey, I just had all my funds stolen. I fell for one of these scams. And the unfortunate thing there is as a project leader, I could look at that and say, Oh, wow, that person just got, you know, scammed and it really sucks for him. And I wish I could help. And there's things like we, what we could do is like maybe blacklist addresses or everything. Turns out the scammer used a Binance address. So it's like, we can't blacklist Binance. That would be silly. Um, and then the other thing that I 
realized is when someone gets scammed, you can't tell if the person who's saying that they got scammed is the scammer themselves. They might say, oh, I lost all these funds to a scammer. Please, you know, help me send, send some funds to me Um, because they could be the scammer themselves. It's like a, it's a nested scam. It's a scam within a scam. And that's also (laughs) happening in crypto. Yeah, exactly. It's an inception scam. And I think what these trustless crypto networks have to do just by default is as humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What happens on the blockchain happens on the blockchain and there's no admin or recourse, as you put it, that's going to be able to help you. Um, So you really have to be responsible for your own funds if you're dealing in this space. And you need to be very careful not to fat finger a transaction when you're copy pasting something. And you, you should be very careful about what you're doing. And if you haven't learned how to be careful, you probably shouldn't do it yet. And you should um, take baby steps before you get there. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about, um, you know, we got a, anybody who's been listening to crypto one one for any amount of time, you know, we've got a big group of, um, subscribers and stuff. Um, what we call crypt nation and in crypt nation, you know, we talk a lot about different, you know, ways that people, cause again, like all the Twitter giveaways and all, you know, Steve Wozniak live stream on YouTube send, um, and it wasn't really him, you know, it was like some person, streaming a video yeah, uh, yeah and then said you know send one you know any amount of bitcoin to this address here there's hundreds of thousands of people watching it thinking it's steve wozniak and you know we'll give you back one or two bitcoin or whatever and so Th- those, are, about- those are really good scams by the way i've oh I yeah across one that uh did that They're same thing but bill gates bill gates was talking about bitcoin they got a video of him doing some interview for like three hours and live streamed it and i was freaking sitting there watching the video and i realized oh this is actually a like scam and I, I had like shared it with a friend and everything oh my those god those are 
it, it's 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 very crazy. Anytime anyone's doing a giveaway or asking you, particularly Run. asking you to send crypto <laughs> anywhere, like I think giveaways are okay as long as you don't have to give up identity information. If you just give them a public address and they send you money, sure, that's fine. But if they ask you for your identity or your social security number or to send crypto to get crypto, none of those are ever true. Yes. <laughs> no, it's just 100% and, scam. And there, there's just so many impersonators. Like anybody listening, if you ever get a message on Telegram or Twitter and it has my picture on it, it's not me. Trust me. I don't need <laughs> your, your tokens. I don't need anything from you guys. There are so many impersonators and scammers out here. It's ridiculous. So be very vigilant. Um, but one of the other things that you mentioned, um, which got me thinking, um, was what happens on the blockchain stays on the blockchain. And I love that term. Like nobody's ever put it that way, but I love it. Um, it's like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, and you know, there, there was a big hack, uh, I guess it was probably early last year, early 2019, I -hmm. think, uh, and when Binance got hacked and -hmm. there was this big discussion about, should we roll back the chain? Um, to block, to basically block the uh, the hackers and make it so that you know that never happened, and you know that was the same idea of what happened with um, Ethereum, in which had the Ethereum Classic fork. Well, I guess Ethereum is the fork of Ethereum Classic because Ethereum doesn't have those hacked funds in it, whereas Ethereum Classic does. Um, but that was a ve- that 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 proposed plan uh, mm-hmm. by CZ. Um, it wasn't necessarily a proposal. It was just like an idea of like, Hey, let's float this out to the community and see what the feedback was. And it was very, very quickly, uh, stomped out. People said, you know, if you roll back the Bitcoin blockchain, um, and you collude with all the miners, then boom, it's done. Everybody has lost trust in the system. It has, it's shown its centralization weaknesses. Yep. So that was a really cool idea, um, that he, that he kind of, thought about and then quickly realized like, oh my God, yeah, that is, sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that that is not how blockchain should be because, you know, what happens on the blockchain and, you know, should stay on the blockchain. And I think it was maybe only one or 2% of their entire, uh, you know, funds. So they, they made all their users whole, but it was just, a, you know, it was just a very cool instance where these conversations do come up. You know, we are experiencing real time uh, debate of how to scale and secure money. Um, it's just so fascinating. Yeah, I think what what's a, a key thing about that Binance case was the first instinct was, oh, we need to work with all the miners, reverse the transactions that happen. Don't have these, I, I forget how many millions of dollars it was, but it was a huge amount of, of funds, even though it was a small amount of Binance, Binance's yeah, funds. Like 50 but million. What came or of that like was that, yeah. the yeah, it was like 50 or 55. I, I forget what what the exact number, but it was it was not uh inconsequential to, to put the least. And I think what, what came of that was Binance created, or maybe they already had it previously, but it, it came to light that this, they called it the Safu fund, but it was basically, they took proceeds from their operations and they just stick it in the safety fund in case, whether it's a hack or it's uh, margin liquidations that don't go right and they need, they need to over uh, re-collateralize some trades that maybe they don't have the assets to back, it becomes this backup fund. And uh, you know, we've been looking at the traditional financial market for some time. If you look at margin accounts that are offered through, uh, you know, when you're buying stocks and, and other things, those companies actually hold a pretty big reserve. Like it's, it's fairly normal to have 10% of all your transaction fees or all the, the um, assets that you're doing in a, in a levered position 
to be held in reserve as a backup in case things go bad. And what we've seen in, in crypto is projects like MakerDAO have not taken that, even though they're offering roughly the same margin account structure for, for ETH to go levered long ETH, there's no safety net uh, for these cascading liquidations that can happen. So while centralized parties like Binance and BitMEX and um, you know, traditional brokerages and, and uh, trading uh, companies have been doing this for a long time, the decentralized versions have not. But I think we're learning that it's of critical importance, as you said, to have some type of insurance fund. And one of the things we'll be implementing in the, in the coming year on Takava is, is just that. So for every uh, amount of debt that's issued, we're going to have 10%. Uh, it, the numbers aren't specific yet, but uh, in the at least in the implementation will become a bit more clear. But it'll be roughly about 10% um, as a backup fund at all times mm. to make sure that the liquidations on our platform go as and then, planned. Yeah, and then you could make um, a really robust system that is resilient against you know some of the problems that MakerDAO had when ETH dropped to like 85 bucks you know a couple months ago and in March, mm -hmm. um, they had some a series of cascading liquidations. Everybody was upset. Total value of ETH, you know, liquidated was was skyrocketing. So it's cool to see that you know every time you have new blockchains and new projects, you're always standing on the shoulders of giants and reiterating and looking at what didn't work and boom, punching it up, uh, implementing something uh, that is a solution that didn't work in the past. So I'm really excited about all the things you're doing. And, and, and that same, that same like train of thought just led me to this next question, which is there are so many, so many, so many, so many amazing projects being built outside of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin still is, you know, the monster of the group, you know, whatever it's a $200 billion market cap compared to, you know, Ethereum at a, whatever, maybe a $20 billion market cap. It's like 10 X as big as the next thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think mm -hmm that it deserves that? Do you think it's going to stay there uh, going forward in the future? Um, what are your thoughts there? So now we're getting into my personal feelings that aren't necessarily reflections of, of Kava. I'm Certainly. a pretty big Bitcoin maximalist. I believe above all technology and all network effects, the, the biggest network effect of all is liquidity. And liquidity begets liquidity in financial markets, meaning the thing that has the most liquid market tends to just suck liquidity out of everything else. And right now we see that with Binance and altcoin liquidity, particularly just everything Kava's on 10 different exchanges, but all the liquidity goes straight onto Binance for the most part. That's where the, the bulk of trading happens. That's where the deepest markets occur. We've seen that with Tether. Tether was the most liquid stable coin. Number of stable coins have come out, but because liquidity is already there for, for, for Tether, it's next to impossible to compete with um, sort of their offering. And that's why Tether is now at, I think, something like $6 billion, uh, today. Ten. It's, it's 10 yeah. But what's crazier is the volume or the amount of Tether traded is just massive. And it's growing every day. Um, and, and Bitcoin's like the king of liquidity of the crypto markets. Because most people buy Bitcoin as their first thing in, um, it's just, and, and most trading pairs are to Bitcoin itself. Bitcoin is the deepest and the most liquid market in crypto outside of uh, I, maybe Tether is a bit deeper. I'm actually unsure about those numbers, but those two, I think, will remain kings for as far into the future as I can see. And I saw you know, that's actually why I was just going to say, yeah. and that, that's actually why we believe that what Kava is doing, one of our main missions is to 
get DeFi working for Bitcoin. It's been impossible to have Bitcoin interact with any other network um, to date, but there's so many people that want to have loans based on their Bitcoin holdings. They want to be able to use DeFi services um, with their, their Bitcoin, and it's the majority of the market. Um, so opening up that gate is really what we're shooting for here at Kava. Um, it's going to be the most, I, I believe it's going to be the most important thing that could possibly happen to the space in the next five years. I think, and the important thing is it'll unlock so many other financial products and derivatives and all sorts of other applications, but it has to happen first. Um, and that's why we're focused there. You perfectly like answered the exact question I was going to ask next was about, you know, why you decided to to start on, um, you know, BNB and not with Bitcoin and is Bitcoin in the future and da da da. But you you answered it perfectly like that. That's coming next. You know, you guys are going to be uh, operating with Bitcoin and, and all that kind of stuff. So that's really cool. Um, and then the the other thing I was going to say was I saw this post the other day that I thought was pretty true. I mean, pretty relevant at the rate that Tether is growing. It is it is actually going to probably make Ethereum uh, like the secondary um like Tether is going to be bigger than Ethereum. And even though Tether is like on Ethereum, again, it's across mm-hmm. a lot of cha- chains. But I thought that was pretty yeah. funny. Like <laughs> Ethereum is going to be second to, to Tether, even though Tether is on the Ethereum platform. Yeah. I mean, Tether started on Omni, which is uh, using Bitcoin as, as its foundation. Um, but then it moved on to Ethereum, which is it's in its ERC-20 form. But what it, I don't know if you've seen the graphs of kind of the dominance of Tether across different networks. But Tron's the, growing pretty quickly. And yeah, Tron's growing, Algorand added, maybe Kava will be the next one to unlock stable coins for, for hey. Cosmos. And Tether uh, will be way faster than those other boys. <laughs> um, yeah. It's actually really good. The faster you can make Tether, the better it is to uh, do arbitrage between exchanges. Yep, um, and the better it is for, for payments. And Ethereum's actually really bad. It takes you know multiple minutes for a transaction to clear. Um, but what... What is particularly an issue, and actually, since you mentioned sort of the MakerDAO, Ethereum uh, issue a few months ago where prices crashed, liquidations crashed, one of the main issues that also happened in that time was that because there were so many transactions happening on the, the Ethereum network, Oracle stopped posting prices, which stopped the price feed module or the, the, the price feed function in Maker from working, and it stopped the, a lot of the, the liquidations like cold in their tracks. So... That, that's really, if you look under the hood, like why were transactions um, so, congest, uh, so congested? It's because most of the transactions on Ethereum are actually Tether. Uh, it's, it's like taking over, just like CryptoKitties did a few years ago when it was a mania around CryptoKitties and they clogged the network. Now Tether is just consistently um, kind of pushing the transaction limit of Ethereum to the top and making transactions really expensive and slow. So I think Tether needs to find a new home, as you mentioned, and uh, I, I think it's already starting to look for it in Tron and Algorand and you know, who knows, maybe Kava pretty soon. That's awesome. And you guys also have a stable coin called USDX. Is that correct? Can you talk us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the main difference between uh, what USDX is as an offering versus something like Tether is that USDX is what our platform issues loans in, and it's 100% backed by crypto assets that people have put in as deposits. Uh, whereas Tether is 100% fiat backed, or you know, 
Actually, they might have a few little crypto holdings, but it's a centralized issuer that issues things based on the fiat that they hold uh, for the most part. Whereas on the USDX side in Kava, everything's 100% trustless. There's no KYC. There's no centralized issuer. It's just the software that issues these loans to, to users. And Makes a ton the, of sense. Yeah. And, and it, this is particularly important for jurisdictions like South Korea, which aren't allowed to have fiat-backed uh, tokens or stable coins or any fiat-backed asset outside of the Korean won traded on crypto exchanges. Uh, but what is compliant with the regulation is it can be backed by crypto assets like Bitcoin or BNB and still be pegged to the USD like our USDX token is, um, which makes it a really nice uh, fiat stable uh, or stable coin trading pair that can open up like USD to Korean won for, for the Korean exchanges. So there's that element of it that I really like. And then the other reason that it exists is all the borrowers of our platform pay an interest rate and that gets trickled back to the people who hold USDX. So anyone who's holding USDX will earn a savings rate automatically block by block. Um, and it'll be to the tune of five to 10%. So it's a really nice place if you want to hedge a trading position or you just want to park cash somewhere and watch that value go up. Um, way better than a checking account or a savings account. That's really badass. Um, and, and then before we get to our, our final closing questions, I, I have one more question about the Kava token. And again, just to preface it, you know, this is not financial advice, not trading or investment advice. Uh, I'm just curious about the Kava token, what role it plays and how, you know, you know, how you incentivize holding tokens for the long term. And really, what was the thinking that went into the Kava token? That's a, another great question. Um, so where is kind of what went at the time that we created Kava, we looked at all the smart contract platforms that are, you know, as you mentioned, running on Ethereum, like MakerDAO, they have a governance token, which decides various parameters of the system. The problem with that is that Maker then inherits the congestion of the Ethereum network. It inherits the security model of the Ethereum network. And when we were creating Kava as a design, we saw those things. We, we had the foresight to see that they were going to be issues in the future. We weren't sure when, but we knew that they were coming. So we designed Kava to be a standalone blockchain. And what that meant was that we need to create the Kava token to be a proof of stake uh, token to, to create the security of our platform. And we attached to that token the rights of governance so they can vote on what assets can be accepted as deposits, how much debt can be issued, basically all the, the different network upgrades or additions we might add to the Kava network, the Kava holders can vote on. And um, what gives it value is that all the fees that are paid in interest by the borrowers, part of that gets burned in the form of Kava tokens. So as the platform grows in value, uh, or as the platform grows in terms of numbers of users taking out loans, the amount of Kava supply gets reduced more and more, um, which creates pretty nice uh, value accrual dynamics for Kava. That's really badass. That, that's pretty unique, actually. I'm not sure of many other coins that have a similar mechanism. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, I think uh, there's different coins that do maybe one of those things, but definitely not, there's very few that might do all of them together. And the, the other thing I didn't mention is uh, for any of these CDP systems, you have to have some type of reserve asset so in the event that for whatever reason, whether it's liquidity is an issue or there's a bug, that the amount of assets that back the debt that has been issued, debt being in this case, the stable coins, um, 
the collateral value of the, the crypto assets, their deposits always needs to exceed the debt value. So in the case that the so it's like it's over collateralization. It's like a over collateralized loan as opposed to where you have the Fed who has a they're issuing money based on zero, right? They have no, they're <laughs> nothing backing it. Or or if they do have anything backing it, they'll buy up some junk debt that they know for sure is never going to get repaid. Um, and they'll yeah. call that junk debt an asset that they're issuing debt against, but it's bullshit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sorry, I and I, I think I think that no, it, it's a it's one I think a lot of people feel close to the heart, and especially in this time of money printer go burr, uh, we're just, <laughs> just watching it just more and it's... more, and we're just like, oh, Bitcoin's becoming more and more attractive. It was already my favorite thing. Now it's even better. <laughs> uh, but it's also it, it, that explains a lot of the core values of what Kava is trying to do. Are all the debt that's issued is over collateralized? So you have the option on one hand to open up a checking account at a bank, which might be 10% collateral backed by, by assets or at, and it's fractional reserve. And on the other hand, you have this decentralized bank of Kava that is over collateralized. And instead of earning 0.01% on that checking account money, you could hold USDX and earn five to 10%. To me, it's a no brainer. The only thing you're really trading is like FDIC insurance at this point for mm-hmm. uh, technical risk. Of these platforms but i think as soon as insurance products get offered as we mentioned earlier uh it, it's it's definitely a no-brainer to where, where i'm gonna put my money awesome yeah me too no i, I we're, we're big uh big proponents of both you know the the centralized lending platforms and the decentralized lending platforms i think that you know the, the centralized platforms kind of like you know celsius they're a good stopgap i think before products like uh kava really scale out to the masses um, and really get that trustlessness imbued in society. But until then, I think uh, um, some of the other things might have uh, just easier easier use case, right? Or easier user interface. Like when I tried to set up my MakerDAO CDP, I literally like stopped. Like I did it and it took me like 20 minutes and I was like, I felt so dumb. I was like, wow, like here I thought I was like a it's like semi-smart dude. And now I feel like an idiot because I can't set up a MakerDAO CDP. Uh, and I did it finally. And then I had my die, right? My, uh, my stable coin that they issued me. And then I couldn't figure out how to like redeem it, like to get my maker tokens. Back, my like, <laughs> no, it was just like a big no, clusterfuck. Yeah. I mean, but, but, but anyone who's tried to poke around with anything on Ethereum, you're just like, wow, this user experience is horrible. Yeah. And the, the block times are relatively fast. But at the same time, you need probabilistic finality of the blocks, meaning that you have to have huge stacks of blocks before you can actually trust the transactions really confirmed. Right. And that's I why think, when people send and that's crypto why around. Everything to, each, each click takes multiple minutes to complete. Right. Yeah. But then with something like the Cosmos SDK, or what Kava's built on, you have block times of seven seconds with finality. And that means after you click in seven seconds, you know the transaction's gone through 100% and you can be sure of that. And where that becomes really important is when you do cross-chain transactions. So you get the block time of one blockchain and the block time of the blockchain that it's going to. Uh, so we can move an asset uh, on our uh, for for like BNB right now between BNB and Kava within you know under thirty seconds, and it becomes a much easier process to to go through things. And there's a lot more intuitive interfaces that can be built as these clicks and and finality times get faster and faster. 
Wow, that's amazing. And I guess that's really, you know, that's really one of the cool aspects of Tendermint, right? Because you have this yeah. consensus protocol that, you know, many different blockchains could kind of all reference and use. And it's very, very, very quick settlement mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to like how you mentioned, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, we, we, have, we have a big crowd of, you know, you know, 101ers, right? You know, crypto curious mm-hmm. people that are maybe just sending their first Bitcoin transaction. And I can't tell you how many times I have to explain a block time and like, hey, I sent my my Ethereum and, you know, it's been two minutes. Where is it? Da, da, da. I'm freaking out. And I'm like, <laughs> well, you have to wait for 30 block yeah. confirmations in order to make sure that there's no double spends. Well, what's a double spend and all that kind of stuff. And well, why isn't Bitcoin's block time 10 seconds? Well, if it was, then it wouldn't be Bitcoin. And all that crazy stuff. So yeah. I'm glad that you brought up uh, brought up that new consensus protocol and that you guys are working with it uh, be- because I think there's a lot of you know really really big steps that you guys could make in the industry. So that's really- yeah. I, I think the easiest way to explain that to people who aren't in the industry is if you tried to buy something with a, a Visa card in a store and you swipe it, but then you have to wait two minutes before they say, "Oh yeah, it cleared. You, you can you know take your goods and leave now." It would be a horrible experience. And then Bitcoin is like 30 minutes. It's like you swipe your Visa card. You have to sit there at the checkout counter for 30 minutes. Finally, the guy at the cashier says, oh, yep, it's good. And then you can leave. Sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, that didn't go through. Try again. (laughs) Wait another 30 minutes. So it's (laughs) currently where things are at. It's just like not an acceptable place. But now block block times are getting much faster thanks to things like the Cosmos SDK and Tendermint. Um, And I think... As I said before, we'll see a lot of new applications and experiences that feel much more akin to what we're used to. Yeah, I'm totally with it. Uh, Brian, man, it's been awesome. Uh, this has been really, really cool. I mean, I, I've heard about Kava. I saw your guys' IEO going around, and I, I never really got a chance to dive deep into it. So this was super helpful for me. Um, I know I'm going to be keeping a really close eye on it. Uh, but before I let you go, uh, we got a couple questions we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Um, just to get a little bit of color into who you are, what drives you, um, tell me one person in the crypto space that you really, really admire. And maybe tell me about an experience that you've had with this person that has left a, a positive impression. Mm. There's a handful, uh, but the one that comes first to mind is is CZ. And the thing that I'm really impressed by is his ability to be on social media, to interact with so many people of different viewpoints and continually remain positive and interact with them in a, in a positive way. I think that's really hard. There's a lot of flamers. There's a lot of uh, people that will say ludicrous things to you that make no sense. There's just a lot of hate. There's all sorts of things. Like people, probably many people who lost money as BNB's price went down, you know, tweet directly at CZ, flaming him for different things. And uh, it was in Singapore. I had dinner uh, with him. And the first thing I asked him was like, what, what advice do you have for me? Like I, I had not been, I actually deleted all my Twitter accounts and, and Facebook and everything for a number of years. And I was like, all right, I'm going to jump back into it because Kava's becoming a, a public thing and I need to be a public person again. Um, and I, I asked him because he's, he's kind of the leader in the space and he's just like, you know, always, always um, know that, you know, people need to hear positivity and if there if you don't have something positive to say you know kind of like thumper and bambi don't say anything don't say it at all at all <laughs> and and uh it, even though it's so simple i i've seen it play out in reality for his twitter and um he does an amazing job there interacting with the the millions of people who follow him so i, I really admire that 
I love it. Wow. That's a really, really great word of wisdom. And, you know, when we, when we, you know, the, the podcast really caught fire and, you know, I wasn't thinking I was ever going to be a public figure, you know, like I didn't think I was ever going to, I thought I was just going to be my little anonymous Twitter profile for the rest of my life. And nope, can't do that. You, <laughs> you know, companies need a face, right? People yeah, yeah. need, uh, need a face and they need something uh, recognizable and they, you're right. They do need to hear um, you know, positivity and, you know, what, what a, you know, crummy crypto podcast this would be if, you know, we just brought on people that talked about all of the bad things about crypto with no solutions and just, uh, you know, that would be terrible. So, you know, some people will listen to the podcast and they'll say, oh, well, you guys only talk about, you know, good things or it seems like hopium or bullet. It's like, well, mm -hmm. yeah, that's why people listen because they want to know that their investment in crypto or, their space that they're dedicating a lot of time to is growing and developing. And there's amazing, bright humans that are building this space. And the future is so, so, so bright. So anybody who's thinking there's too much hopium, uh, that's why we do what we do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's really difficult for me personally is I do a lot of due diligence into a number of the projects that come into the space. Uh, as they come in, I look at who, who's behind it. I look at the code, I see what they're doing. And a lot of them, I'm like, oh, that's, it's a big scam. Like that has less than 1% chance of delivering and people right. are putting their money in it. And I, I would Black love so to easy. be public and just sort of, you know, say, say that, you know, here's my opinion. It's my opinion, but I really don't like that project. I think people are going to lose money. I think it's bad for the world. Um, but at the same time, I know that's not going to, I got to take the sage advice of CZ since he knows best and I just <laughs> need to bite my tongue. And focus on the problems that I'm solving and uh, cheer on the people who I actually appreciate. It's way better uh, time spent because sort of the bad projects and the scams, if, if you just try to go after them, it's kind of like whack-a-mole. There's always going to be another one <laughs> and you, you got you to stay focused to the task at hand. Straight up, man. Brian, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I, I can't thank you enough for spending the, I mean, this was, an, this was a long one. This was a full hour that we got in. Um, just really interesting. It flew by. Before we let you go, uh, tell the good citizens of Crypt Nation where they could keep tabs on the Kava project. Yeah, yeah. best place for us is Twitter. Uh, our handle is at Kava underscore labs. And if you want to join our Telegram group, it's t.me slash Kava Labs. Brilliant. All right, Brian. Well, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have you back on the pod here uh, next time you guys have you know a big news announcement or, or a big rollout. Uh, we'd love to hear it first and uh, dive it, dive into it a little bit more. So thank you again. And everybody who's watching uh, today, take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.